Welcome to The Grand Exit, the podcast where we plan for death while living our lives. I'm Julia Joyce Barry. Well, here we are at the fourth episode of The Grand Exit podcast. On this episode, I talk with Basil Weiner, who is a hospice nurse in Philadelphia and also happens to be my very close friend. Basil shares with me his reasoning for why he chose to work specifically in hospice and also shares many anecdotes that make me marvel again and again at the normity of his work. He also generously shares his own experience with dealing with the overwhelming aftermath of a loved one's death. You'll quickly be sucked in by Basil's thoughtfulness, in particular consideration of his work and his own mortality. You won't have a hard time understanding why I call him my best friend. And a note about this conversation. I actually recorded it over a month ago, but was in fact waylaid by a death in the family and a subsequent funeral and grieving process. I felt unable to edit and release it until now. So yes, it has been a month since episode three, and I very much appreciate your patience in the interim. But no more interim, for here is my conversation Hi. Hi. Your um, your hair is such that it looks like there's like a curl right in front. But if you lean back, it looks like a, a Harry Potter lightning oh. star. <laughs> yeah, it's my um, it's the mark. It's it's the mark. It's like the bedhead uh, cosplay Harry Potter mark. <laughs> Oh, also your beard looks good. Thank you. Yeah. My glasses, I had to get glasses too. Oh yeah. Okay, wait. Let's take a moment for your handsomeness. Ah! <laughs> 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 Love it so much. Well, thank you so much again for doing this. Uh, I appreciate you. And let's let's get started. Um, so the way I you know, uh, like to start is with two things. I like to ask you how you would describe yourself. And that's really up to your own interpretation of that. And then the second question is how you got here. So how you got to be on this podcast. My name is Basil and I am a native of the Philadelphia area. And I work here uh, in a small community hospital as a registered nurse on a hospice and palliative care unit. And that's sort of my professional, how I would describe myself and um, other things about me that perhaps might be of interest are that I live, I now live in Philadelphia with, not with, but close to both of my sisters. And I feel very, like, in this moment, super excited and connected to the idea of family. And my big, my oldest sister just moved to Philadelphia yesterday. And I, on the front page of who I am is this feeling of, like, um, kind of a, a wholeness and a, re, a, re, a rejoining and a, and, a, and a coming together of family. And all the nieces and nephews get to play together now and me and my sisters get to be together. And um, it's just been 
it's really exciting. So I guess those are those are the things that come to mind first. I so guess exciting. into family and and uh, and and the thing I do for work too. And I guess that sort of is a good segue into how to answer your second question, which is how I got to, into this conversation with you, probably through two main roads. One being my work as a as a medical professional in the world of end of life care and also as a close friend of yours lucky me (laughs) (laughs) so getting to hear about the rollout of your podcast and listen to the episodes and feel um excited about the fact that you're feeling called to explore this thing that i am intimately involved with at work and have Great. some intimate personal experience with as well um, is a nice synergy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. I, I feel um, it's interesting because when you were saying like you feel called to this, it's really interesting because in that moment I felt like I don't feel called to it right now. Like I'm like annoyed with this. <laughs> but like in a way that just feels like that's just like totally fully part of the process where it's like I'm not like I still want to talk to people and I still want to keep going but there's this part of me that I think is like in this very moment is a little bit like oh it feels like it just feels like a, a lot and but in a way that I'm really interested in like seeing through um but yeah that so there's two things the, the sort of job uh, portion of your life that, you know, we can talk about that, how that is integrated into this podcast and then also your like real life experience. Um, yeah. And then also just, you know, obviously this podcast, we want to eventually also get to what your own personal relationship to your own passing um Mm -hmm. feels like and what that sort of rollout might look like and whatever Mm -hmm. way you are ready to talk about that um but let's start with let's start with your your job um my I mean my initial I remember when you first told me you were you were going to to nursing school I I remember you had mentioned that you're interested in in hospice care perhaps and end of life um, work, but what sort of, what drew, like drew you to that specifically and then landed you there? Well, specifically within the world of medicine, I, I guess maybe it came from uh, a p- sensibility that I have around intervention is, I guess, what way you could put it. I, I kind of knew, I knew going into nursing that I didn't want to do um, surgical nursing or or intensive care nursing, which are, or emergency room nursing, which are all aimed primarily at diagnosing and reviving. Um, And oftentimes working in this space, which I still work in now in a different way, but the space around somebody coming into the hospital with, the you know sort of at the end of a disease process or 
with a critical injury that is life-threatening, there's usually a sense that the practitioner has around what, um, what the likelihood of survival might be and what the relative value and or futility of pursuing aggressive curative treatment might be. And the idea of, and, and, we, and currently, and I think this is a good thing in medicine, we follow the wishes of the patient. And that hasn't always been the case, but now it's very patient-centered. And so patients and families get to say, even if it's not really advisable, I want everything done. I want, I don't, I'm not ready to die or I'm not ready for my family member or my person to, to die, which is a very emotional thing. And who can argue with that? And at the same time as the person who might have to do the chest compressions or might have to manage the respirator or the, the ventilator or um, you know, give the, give the medicine that's really toxic, but also potentially prolongs life for a little bit. What wasn't an idea that I was interested in? It just feels better, more aligned with who I am to be positioned towards the end of that decision-making process. I don't think I have the uh, disposition to um, to work hard to save somebody's life who is really dying. Um, and once a patient or a family member has, or the family has come together to make the decision to accept that comfort is more important than survival, um, I really like being in that space. So that's kind of why I am drawn there or why I was initially drawn there. And interestingly, I work on a floor that people do, people come to the floor and they and they die on on my floor at work, and also it's overflow for like everything else in the hospital. So I've had to learn how to do both. Hmm. And um, so you like to do some of the things that you weren't necessarily wanting to do initially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to work. I have to work really hard to save lives a lot at work. And yeah. Um, and I've actually, it's, I've appreciated that process more than I thought I would. Um, giving, giving the agency over to the patient and the family and trusting that they're making the decision for them that's right is, you know, okay for me every once in a while to do something that maybe I don't feel like I would choose to do if I were in that situation, but really I'm not in that situation. And it's been a nice sort of process of, of trusting the the real decision makers and 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 being a part of that process with them, even if maybe in the back of my head I'm thinking this person is really dying, and we're doing we're doing stuff that maybe is making them less comfortable. And and how much more comfortable could they be if they were a hospice patient? But I'm still involved in that process and at some step of that process of helping a family come to terms. And I, and I can see that I can appreciate that context and I don't struggle with it as much as I thought I would. Hmm. 
it's really interesting. I, you know, I think in my, in my brain, like anytime I hear about somebody who wants to work in uh, like as a doula or in hospice, um, I instantly just think, oh, it, it's because they're a certain kind of person with like a certain type of like a sensibility and they're, they're good at this kind of thing. And my brain doesn't really sort of go beyond, beyond that. And the sort of like, oh, they're, they're special, but I also never, I never thought about it. Like I, I want to be an assistant as best I can. And this is actually a scenario where I can really assist towards a very specific sort of end, whereas the other feels like a fight a little bit more where it's like, and it may or may not go as planned. And mm -hmm. that can feel, at least I, for me, that feels, that does feel scary, at least thinking about that being in a position where people perhaps are more, are like really rooting for one scenario. Mm -hmm. where and and if it doesn't happen that's going to be really devastating when meaning living yeah um and then but when we all have sort of agreed that we're working towards death together then it mm -hmm. seems like it's maybe more collaborative than like the sort of uh i don't know if more sort of like fear-based uh, collaboration or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I like, this might be a little bit too zoomed out, but I like the idea of like putting a subtitle on all of life that says we're working towards death together. Love it. <laughs> because <laughs> we are, aren't we? I mean, yeah, we're, we're living, we're, we're all trying to live and we're all trying to figure out how to do that in ways that feel the best for us. And also that that's inevitably, we all know how it ends or, you know, that it ends. And so I like right. that. I like the togetherness of that. Um, but that's not always the case, you know, in the real world in in the hospital or at home with families, like it's complicated. And oftentimes there are very powerful people who don't agree within a family system and yeah. The doctors and the nurses and the social workers, whoever's involved, can the doulas can really get, you know, stuck in the middle of that. Um, yeah. Without like obviously naming any anyone in particular, but do you have a like anecdote for something like that that's happened recently, where people have been like at odds? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the scenario that I think of first is that we have a lot of situations sad, very sad. It's very sad and I, and I get it. And I have a situation in my family where people, there are certain people who don't talk to each other, but when somebody is sick or dying and there are family members who don't talk to each other, mm. but who still have a warm and special connection with the person who's, who's passing away. Mm -hmm there's oftentimes a lot of pressure placed on the nurse or the doctor to mediate their relationship yeah. or at the very least to um, help schedule time where they're visiting with the person and the other person, the person they don't talk to isn't there. And it brings 
out this it's very sad and I feel I feel grief around it when it happens because mm. what I, I mean who am I to say I don't know what these families members have gone through or what kinds of injuries they've suffered or or inflicted on each other but there's a feeling that I have around somebody dying where it's like maybe now's the time to try to sit in the same room together and I don't really want to be working out your visitation schedule for you <laughs> yeah no but yeah that's the first thing that comes to mind I'm sure there are others I think you know everyone is everyone grieves in different ways oftentimes family members will choose not to come to visit a loved one who's dying mm -hmm. oftentimes it'll be like a the person most involved will be actually like a close friend who's communicating with the family. Sometimes you can feel that there's real coldness and distance and mom is dying and the kids aren't there and they're calling for a two minute update once a day. Um, yeah, it seems like there, there is this need for some sort of like host in a way or like if it isn't this friend or family member, if, there, if, there's, if that sort of role is absent, then people are sort of looking to you or or someone else in your position to sort of like conduct this next stage. Does mm -hmm. that seem, I mean, like that's, because otherwise it's like, what, what are we doing? Like, how do we, how do we, how do we interact with this, with this moment? Um, and I'm not saying that there should be, but it, in my head, and maybe that's also, you know, I have that, that impulse always to sort of like, I can't think of a better way to say it, but like curate a situation where there's like multiple people involved and there's like people's feelings and thoughts need to be like really held. And so I feel like, well, there has to be somebody who's like mm -hmm. in charge. Yeah. You know? And I think that we do, we are sometimes in the position to do that. And, and you can really feel when that's lacking in the room. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes just something as simple as, is everyone comfortable? Can I get some more chairs? Does anyone need a drink of water? Like mm -hmm. that kind of hosting can be really helpful. And then if people are open to that kind of presence, like sometimes you get you you walk into the room to clean the patient up or or reposition them in the bed or change the settings of the pump and you can tell that that they don't want you in there. And that you should mm. and go as quickly as possible because their process together is very private yeah. and that's beautiful and other times you can feel i can feel as i walk into the room that some that some help is needed and some gesture towards hey i'm here for you guys let me know what you need i can a lot of times people have questions about like how close do you think she is and we noticed this change in her breathing and what does that mean? And do you think she's in pain? Do you think she can hear us? Like that kind of thing is, it, I, welcome, I welcome that type of experience as well. And then other times people have like no idea what to do and they're completely frozen. Yeah. And I, I will feel called in those moments more to try to facilitate a more, more actively like, 
-hmm. or at least try to assess how open they are to talking. Because I think it's really important. I think that there's this idea of anticipatory grief and maybe that maybe that's been happening already because mom or dad or whoever has been sick for a while. I had a, I recently had a, a really interesting case where there was a young surgeon who had a really aggressive brain tumor and they knew that he, that he was going to die from it because the, the, it's a, called a glioblastoma and it's just the survival rate of this type of cancer is really, really low. And he was a surgeon, so he knew. And his wife and his daughter knew. Um, and they had made some decisions in the last year to do a, a surgery that could prolong his life, but also preserve his ability to, to work. But now it was beyond sort of beyond the pale. And he was having these intractable seizures, just like constantly seizing. And, and so we had him in the room on hospice, on a drip of Ativan, which is like a benzodiazepine, which stops the seizure process, but makes you very sedated. Mm-hmm. And a drip of morphine is often used at end of life for trouble breathing. Oh, I didn't actually um, know that. Yeah, yeah. I just, I always just associated it with like pain, just extreme like pain. Yeah, yeah, it's sort yeah. of both. It's sort of both, yeah. Because it, it it addresses pain, but it also suppresses the drive to breathe. Uh-huh. And, it, and it evens out the breathing and it makes the breathing less hard, right. less hard work to breathe. Okay. Um, the extreme the extreme example would be like an like a heroin overdose where someone stops breathing. Her heroin and, and morphine work the same way. So when we use it in a nuanced way we're not killing anybody but we're just helping them stay comfortable so he was in there right and the the wife and the daughter they struck me as so poised and so um kind of already okay with it Mm. in a way or maybe they were keeping it together or maybe when I closed the door they were crying together or you know who knows but I was wondering if they because he was a medical professional and could speak with them about what to expect. And because they had had time to prepare if their grief looked different. But I think talking in the room and, and, and helping people process is a really important part of my job an important part of the, the dying process for the patient and for the family. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, it feels like a, 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 an easy segue into something more personal. Do you Mm -hmm. mind if I, if we talk about experience you've had on sort of the other side of it? No, not at all. Well, I know that you started talking about your family and how Mm -hmm. your sisters and nieces and nephews are now all there with you, which Mm -hmm. feels super fucking special um, Mm -hmm. and and super rare. And that's something that's like, come up in my brain and like sort of in the like zeitgeist of like family building with like our friend group recently it's like it's really hard to actually have this sort of like homesteading like family raises each other environment anymore Mm -hmm. um and I just think that 
first of all, I just think that's really cool that that's happening for you. But I also think that that's also a bit in response to like a lot of other uh, things that have happened in your family and yeah, specifically surrounding Mm -hmm. some death as well. Yeah. So it was three years ago on June 18th. So today's July 3rd. So we just, we just hit the three year anniversary of our dad passing away. And um, there's a lot to say there. I mean, immediately connected to the coming together of the siblings in Philadelphia. I think in a, in a very real way, it wouldn't have been possible b- before my dad died um, because, of, because of strained relationships. Um, with your dad, like strained relationships with your dad and your siblings? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, my sisters, and and he didn't didn't find it peaceful to to be in the same space. Mm-hmm. So, probably my oldest sister may may not have brought her family to Philadelphia, you know, where he lived while he was still here. I don't know. Maybe she would have, but I I guess that's a question I have. Yeah. Um, but talking to go back to what we were talking about before about anticipatory grief, mm-hmm. he was sick for like almost 10 years with kidney cancer. Right. And so I had the opportunity to be with him really intimately through that, through that process. Um, and so when he actually did pass away, I wasn't so like there wasn't an element of grief that was surprise. And that's, I think when someone dies in a surprising way, that's totally different than when someone dies in a way that you can prepare for if you, if you can and want to prepare for it. Yeah. And what kind of preparations did, did you make with him? I didn't make any preparations with him. In fact, he Mm -hmm. was really, um, he was really resistant to preparing. He was like, any mention that you make of my death feels like it's working against my goal to live. Like those were sort of his exact words. And I was like, yeah, like I want you to live too, but also you're going to die. die. (laughs) And that feels really hard to say to somebody who's like, I just want to focus on surviving. Absolutely. And so I didn't make preparations with him, but I did, I think, prepare inside of myself and together with my siblings. Yeah. Um, and at the very end had to really press upon him, like within a day or two of him passing away, that we needed to at least get a nurse to come to the house to make sure that he didn't die a terrible, horrible death. Mm, meaning painful. Painful or alone or... Drawn out. Yeah, just unnecessarily. Like it was um, June 18th when he died. It was like 100 degrees outside and the air conditioning in this house wasn't working. So like, you know, that kind of thing. like there are systems in place. I kept on being like, there are systems in place to help with this process. And I just, 
like literally like I need you to sign this piece of paper <laughs> so that so that you can be comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's if I'm going to be honest, you know, and I, I may have mentioned this to you before, but uh, you know, your experience with your dad and um this his sort of stubbornness about making sort of very, like logistical yeah. operations was was part of like was a, a contributed to my desire to make this podcast because mm-hmm. I observed how how time consuming and difficult it was in certain ways for you yeah. all and um of course there is the, there are legal components to all of that which is separate from what we're sort of talking about here on this podcast but like um but it's oh it's it's connected but um more about the like yeah how do we how do we prepare the people that we're leaving behind for that you know like i of course of course we understand that folks and your and your dad don't want to don't want to be reminded of of their death they want to just really underscore life right now but it's like but what about when you go there's all this stuff and I mean that in like a very broad Mm -hmm. way I also mean that in a very literal way do you yeah do you feel comfortable talking about the sort of the stuff component of your literal stuff the literal stuff yeah yeah I mean he I I was he he and my my mom were divorced when I was two and my sisters both moved out young for their own reasons and so and I'm the youngest and so it was just him and I in the house and I remember this feeling very distinctly of 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 like feeling crowded out because there was this slow but steady accumulation of stuff and I didn't how cold like when you were still really young yeah probably started when I was 10 or 11 or something I lived I lived in the house until I was 18 and then I visited him regularly after that but like we my sister who Sochi and I who who um did the work she did most of the work of cleaning after he died Mm -hmm. we and I helped her a bunch um we are sad that we didn't take pictures Mm. and it's understandable because um we were overwhelmed and we just needed to to do it we just needed to get it done but he had this property it's like a little half acre in the philadelphia suburbs with two small houses and five garages and like a big parking lot behind the back house and there were the houses were like full to the gills both of them of stuff their garages were full to the gills of stuff the extra garages the three garages detached were full of stuff and the yard and the driveway there were like five broke down sailboats and a camper <laughs> van and a, and six cars and like 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 literally oh my God. just imagine like just try to picture the worst hoarding situation and and this is pretty much it and if this stuff is like and you're just like mentioning now like the like large scale like taking up space objects 
But yeah. like, I'm also thinking like the stuff that like freaks me out even more is like all the like yeah. stuff. Oh my gosh. Like, how, wait, but I, well, this is a medium sized object, but I remember at one point, like how many guitars did you find? He had like, like 40 classic guitars. He was really into music and he, and he spent Incredible. his money on, on, on music here, you know? Yeah. But it was like, it would be like a 1967 Les Paul, like I... hollow body classic rock guitar. But it was like in like a weird cardboard box in the corner, like kind of wrapped up in like a dreadlock of other wires. Yeah. And we had to, we've had to go through and undo, like clean it up. And, uh, and yeah, the, the little stuff is, is really where the, where the rubber meets the road. You don't want to go through it all, but part of you wants to at least see it all. Yeah. So when you say like you're, you're like remiss that you didn't take pictures, is that because you kind of wanted to be like, y'all like yeah the density of this yeah yeah like people who have come into our lives or since then or who never got to see the place Mm -hmm. most people because he was reclusive and he didn't invite people over yeah I mean I but I also know that like pictures never do it justice and I will say on my end like every description that you've ever given to me I'm already like yeah I get uh yep (laughs) and and also just like thinking about you you and and observing you like really learning a lot about some really weird niche things like how to sell what were like the campers Mm -hmm. and like getting into that world of like camper people yeah (laughs) camper people they're a real a real breed yeah and and also other hoarders because we um uh-huh. we did us an estate sale yeah two, two weekends two a Saturday and a Sunday um and posted it on like Facebook Marketplace and mm-hmm. the estate sale website for the county and uh, we were just absolutely bowled over by how many people showed up and the people who showed up we were like oh like you're also dad would have come to this estate sale. <laughs> you've, you've probably just been trading. <laughs> like, yeah. You've just been like trading old like records with each other yeah. for like the past 15 years. Like, oh, I bought this from you in 88. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Like people were coming to be like, now where's my salt lamp that I sold to that guy for a dollar six years ago? Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. That, yeah, that real, that salt lamp contingent, <laughs> but had, I feel like it's, yeah, it's he just, like, salt lamps. he had what? There were 30 salt lamps in the house. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. The air was like, what is it supposed to do? Like, uh, like release positive ions. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, he would say he'd probably say like it binds free radicals in the air. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I will give it to Salt Lamps. I ha- having having owned one I, at some point, and I don't know, abandoned it at another point. But like, it does give a cool, like a nice, warm, womb-like oh, yeah. glow. Yeah. Yes. You know. You know. I love a salt lamp. 
30 salt lambs. I fuck with a single salt. I will fuck with a single salt lamb. But when it's you know what? Yeah, I also fucks with like the the salt the salt lamb uh, night lights. Those will do in a pinch. (laughs) They're also portable. You can bring that to your sleepovers. Yeah, they don't weigh 15 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. exactly that's I, that's like a great like first like hookup like weird story where like someone's like hi actually sorry one second i just need to go into my bag and get something and you're like okay okay and just, like, bring <laughs> out the salt lamp plug in and yeah. like ah, okay night <laughs> but honestly i'd appreciate it i'm like oh, that's like a nice like you know soothing comforting vibe Anyways, we, uh, yeah, stuff, a lot of stuff. And that I remember, and I wonder too, like when you have to deal with all this stuff that where it, I mean, it could have been dealt with before, right? Mm-hmm. There was some, there was a good amount of time of like, well, we know that this is coming. Um, and I yeah. wonder like, I'm just going to, I mean, I'm just going to ask you, did you feel like resentment about that? Yeah. 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 I beat the shit out of an old uh, bicycle with a golf club. I threw many dozens of plates out the second story window to just crash onto this driveway. Hell yeah. We were, we were working it out. Like it was, it had to be tied up with our, with our grief, you know? Yeah. And we we had a lot of anger in there. I still have a lot of anger. And yeah. yeah, I was resentful. And I told him before he died, I was like, you know, you're gonna leave this huge mess for us. Yeah. Don't you wanna try to start working on it now? I'll help you. Yeah. Uh, if you if we can start getting rid of some things. And he just had no will, no will to do it. He had I think his his sense of self and his identity was tied up in all the stuff and to to get rid of it would have been to get rid of himself on some level. So he said, he said to me, you know, sometimes people die and they leave a mess. And that was actually the first time that I really heard him talk about his death. Mm. You know, you're you're probably just going to have to deal with it. I don't know what to tell you, Baz. (laughs) I was like, okay. Fuck you, but also, yeah, you're right. And that's, <laughs> and it's very like, and I am going to die. So. Yeah. Like, don't pick on me. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. What a trap, but like also funny now, I guess. Um, when the, another quick side story. When yeah. he, I was in nursing school and I came home. He had, he had, I finally got him a few weeks before he died to agree to wear one of those medical alert buttons. Mm -hmm. And the way that the system worked was that if he pressed it, he could talk to me on, it would call my cell phone and I could talk to him Uh through his his necklace that he was wearing. And also it would call an ambulance and if it would sense if he fell and it would call me right away or it would call the ambulance. And so the night before he died, I, I got a call three in the morning. I answer it and I just hear him saying, I fell and I can't get up. Uh And so I drove over there and he, 
had fallen on his way to the bathroom. Mm. And I like picked him up out of off the floor and I said, Dude, I'd like to call an ambulance. And he said, No, I just want to go back to bed. So I put him back to bed and I found in the mess, I found like a roll, like a roll of you remember the egg crate foam that you put on top of your mattress? Yes. I found that and I put it on the floor on the foot at the foot of his bed and I found a sheet and I found a pillow and I slept there. Ah. But I had to go to school to take a test the next day. So I set him up as best I could and I said, I'll be back as soon as my test is over. And I drove back and I found him unresponsive. Oh my God. And so I called the hospice agency that we had finally gotten signed on to like two days before. And they said, okay, we're sending a, an ambulance to bring him to a nursing facility where he can be on hospice there. Right. And the ambulance came and the, the two young women who were driving the ambulance went up to the room and put him on a stretcher. Yeah. But they couldn't get out because the horde was so big. So, so, so and I, we had to rearrange the whole house, like move couches out and like move all this shit to just get Holy shit. into the ambulance to, to leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy. It was oh, crazy. he built his fortress. Yeah, yeah. It was oh, a trap. Man. Yeah. Jesus. Oh, I've been in spaces like that where it's just literally like a like a, a foot wide path, mm-hmm. basically, that you're navigating to move through this space, like the living yeah. space. And it's usually a foot wide and probably three to five feet tall. Yeah. It's my experience. It's a canyon. Yeah. Like a tight, a tight canyon. Yeah, it's like Jenga. I'm like, I'm like, I am in like the Richard Serra like hoarders menagerie of hell. <laughs> like, yeah, and it's, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, but it's also, I don't, it's a pathology that I actually, I, I really don't understand. Um, I, I, I understand it intellectually, but I, I don't feel any sort of like, physical response to that like oh I, I, I kind of get that I understand how that could happen like a buildup of stuff like that has the river like it doesn't calm me it doesn't make me feel uh connected to myself or anything like that it it, it feels the opposite to me so it's it's very yeah. interesting I don't have I don't have a any kind of judgment on it actually I think yeah. it's it's interesting. It's just something that I personally, um, yeah, build up stuff freaks me out, but me too. But I also regret there's so many things I've thrown out in moments of like panic because I I'm overwhelmed by the stuff that I actually wish I had like given more like real critical thought to how I could use it or give it away or been more patient about, about getting rid of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. Yeah, and we've been like, gosh, if we had a salt lamp, or you know, a guitar, or 
yeah, about an extension cord. Like I like how many times have I gone in the last three years to the hardware store to buy something that I already had 35 of when my dad died that I've just had uh -huh. to get rid of because it, it was all just part of this process that and it yes. all needs to go. And there was yes. no bandwidth for like, this could be useful because that was the thinking that got us into that <laughs> place in the first place. Right. <laughs> like the catharsis of just getting everything out had to be the objective. It couldn't, you, there, yeah, there wasn't like, yeah, bandwidth for like all these sort of like alternate thoughts and threads of like, who would possibly enjoy this? Mm -hmm. It had to just be like, get it out. <laughs> yeah. 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 <sighs> Yeah. Well, I guess having experienced that so intimately on that side, have you given thought to, to any sort of planning on your own end? Not seriously yet. Um, but, and, and it's been fun to listen to the episodes of your podcast because mm -hmm. especially, oh, I don't remember who the, who the guest was, but someone was talking about wanting to create um, I'm going to get this wrong. I'll, so, I'll, I'll figure it out with you. I'll figure it yeah. out with you. Someone was talking about like, okay, yeah, people can go off and do their own like small group things, but I also want to create a moment for everyone to be together. Mm -hmm. My guess is it was probably Steph Singer. Okay. My guess. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe uh, it was Alex. But yeah. yeah. I think they both had that sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I feel... I don't know if I feel very precious about what it is. I I think um, I want people to do what feels right. Mm -hmm. People who are still here when I go, I want people to do what feels right for them. If there's somebody with the energy to, to organize a thing, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, do, I like the idea of people getting together and telling stories and remembering me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. They would have wanted I, their ashes yeah. spread here. Yeah. They would have wanted you to see each other one last time. Right. <laughs> that all feel to me. That all feels like a projection. Like you pro of course, you're pro yeah. projecting what you want onto the person who's passed, and saying this was actually this would have actually been their wish. So let's do it. It gives you some mm -hmm. extra commitment to do the thing, and. Um, I don't, I don't know that it matters what I want after I'm dead. Right. And I think like in my sort of experience of that, it's the same, the same idea, but the opposite in that, like, I don't, I, I'm worried that there's going to be a projection of what I want mm. and that that's going to be inaccurate and that I, it, you know, perpetuates my fear of not being known. <laughs> and understood but it's like I keep hitting this sort of like like bumper this like rubber bumper when I get to that thought where it's like but you're dead and that doesn't matter and whatever projection they had on you is correct for them and you can't course correct that and like get over it um so I'm like still trying to find my like uh, where I land in this sort of hamster wheel moment, but I like, don't know that I will. Um, I think it's like both. Like I, I, I do want, I do know that I do, I do care about certain things being done, but mostly it is because it's, it is for the people. Yeah. 
And then there is this little fucking piece of me that's just like, I just want to make sure you know that I did this or I did that or I thought this way and I don't, I can't let go of it yet. I can't. And I really hope to. I would be really nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really would be so nice. I mean, maybe, maybe part of this feeling that I have around like, well, it doesn't really matter what I think or want when I'm dead is a, is coming from the relative like place of privilege of not having had serious occasion to contemplate my, my death, you know, Anytime. like or serious um, threat to my livelihood. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I don't know, like maybe if I was passing away and someone came to someone close came to me and said, what do you want us to do? That would feel really compelling to, to articulate mm -hmm. something or it just feels like really hard and abstract. It's so funny because I, it is abstract. I work with death every day right. and yet my own, my own death probably as a coping mechanism isn't, doesn't feel real. Interesting to think about. Yeah, I think so too. Like in a way for me too, like writing my own wishes, I just, and I've mentioned this before, but I just don't feel too emotional about it. I have this sort of numbness surrounding it. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I start to like picture the faces of who is there or like their grief, then I start to like be able to tap into it. So mm -hmm. it, yeah, it is abstract. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about our own sense of being and unbeing. <laughs> yeah. But then there's the actual like practical part of it is that like, yeah, we are, then we're a body, a decomposing body. And we're uh, a, a body who knows many people who has many possessions, has left some, a lot of marks on things that are in some ways indelible, like sometimes the financial things, sometimes just like a fucking phone bill right didn't you have to deal with with that like yeah i'm having this thought now that maybe my maybe my disinterest in thinking about this is an is somehow an inheritance you know like i literally was thinking that before yeah. but i didn't want to put that those words in your mouth yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> so i should think about that probably but yeah, like the stuff that I have now, I, I don't know, you know, I don't have much, but I guess my people would go through it. And yeah, yeah. I don't know. I literally wrote I in my document, like I have like two people who are <laughs> supposed to like go, like be in charge of getting rid of my clothes and my jewelry and stuff. And they're um who, I was like it's first come first serve like whoever wants it gets it and like don't make it weird you know um but it's also like I'm just now like ascribing like a certain amount of like <laughs> I can't tell if there's this like dramatic part of me that wants to see like my friends squabbling over us like jewelry <laughs> of mine when I'm sure they won't get a shit <laughs> I'm like don't make it don't make it awkward guys like don't lose your friendship over this, like, you know, $7 ring that you found in my, like in my jewelry box. I don't know. I, 
or is it, or am I being practical? Like, or am I just being like hyper-realistic where it's like, yeah, this stuff is kind of weird and awkward. And like, how about you just tell these two people, like mm -hmm. tell people they can have what they want and then donate it. And that, that is yeah. what I said. Um, yeah. So I think it's like half, half in that and half out of it. Um, yeah. I also had a thought and I totally lost it. So hopefully it will come back. Um, oh, about the, about the phone bill. What, wasn't there some, something where you couldn't, you couldn't um, cancel your dad's phone plan or something? One of his, one of his vices was signing up for subscription services to um, get rich quick schemes. Oh shit. Okay. When, when he passed away, I was looking into his bank account because mm -hmm. thank God he had a document on his desktop of all his passwords. So God I, bless the boomers. <laughs> so I got into I got into the bank account with the password and I was looking at all the charges and I I was like, what are these? They're so weird. It's like $250 a month is going towards this thing. And then I had to Google the thing and it was oh like a God you know, like a real estate flipping education program or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, how yeah, long I think have you been it. paying it? Years, I Years. think. And it was like some battle to get them to stop charging him. And an interesting thing on the legal side is that recurring charges or bills or debts are all cancelable if you can send a death certificate. So you actually have to, right. the death certificate is like the most precious document for this mm -hmm. kind of stuff, because a lot of companies won't even talk to you if you don't have one. Yeah. We're going to sort of transition to closing out, but I want to give you an opportunity to share any final thoughts or anything that might have occurred to you or anything you think is important well, for talking about this stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, this thought about preparing mm -hmm. I just, for my own passing is, um, it's interesting. And I, I notice that I have very little to say about it and and I wonder you know I feel I feel inspired to to stay with that question after this conversation yeah. um and to consider you know what it, what do I want and what are my values around that if I have any and is it is it true what I said like that I would just want it to be whatever or do I have more of a more needs around that than I yeah than I, than I did at first yeah I mean I I didn't know until I started writing you know and I I just sort of made this google document and then it all started coming out and I was very surprised um so yeah you never know so I'm gonna end with a question and it's not gonna be it's gonna be uh, from the death deck. Um, last time I, I asked one of my more elliptical questions and it was caused some, some brain breakage. So we're gonna <laughs> give ourselves a break on a Saturday. The death deck is just this uh, 
I've said this before, but it's like, it looks like this. It's just like this little deck of cards that it has like a cute little skeleton on it. And um, it's a series of questions about death and dying. Um, but I also know that there's like a game associated with it, but I've never uh, <laughs> read. <laughs> like, I, I don't like reading instructions or directions. So <laughs> we're gonna do it this way. Um, okay, so where should I choose the card from? Middle? Tell me where to stop with my finger. Stop. Ah, okay. Here is the question. Oh God. <laughs> this is this might actually be very like uh, antithetical to this to our conversation, right. but it says DIY. If you could plan your own celebration of life party, where would it take place and what would be the theme? Okay, well, I'm giving you permission to just make a silly, right. give a silly answer. All right, all right. All right. it would take like my... Dave and Buster's. A <laughs> <laughs> um, celebration of life party would happen. I think it would happen in a. This is actually a, my real answer. Um, oh yay! I think I would like it to happen in a place that I that I find very beautiful and moving and soothing. Um, so I'm going to say in a, in a clearing on a mountain in the, in like Vermont or New Hampshire, where you can see a clear day where you can see like all the other mountains and no, no towns or no civilization. Classic, Classic DIY death party <laughs> view. <I> mean, <laughs> And the theme would be um, Twin Peaks. I'm just kidding. It's like the theme. Oh my gosh. This is this is like coming up with themes or like even outfits for me is such a blind spot. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I, I will say as being on the receiving end of many checks about what should I wear to a roller disco yeah. party? Yeah. <laughs> like roller skates and no. Oh yeah, maybe there, there, that's the theme. There was I a, was gonna suggest it, yeah. There's a um there's a, a temporary skating arena placed on top of this mountain. Holy shit. Okay. In Appalachia and people are skating and <laughs> looking at the disco. Okay. I feel left out. As you know, I cannot roller skate. <laughs> 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 oh, it's all just be like the master of ceremonies then. There's also little carts that people who can't skate can sit in and people who can skate can push them around. Okay, I'm loving this. <laughs> Everything is coming together. <laughs> I think you're better at this than you think. Um, you. I love that. That's fun. Um, great. Well, I just want to say thank you again. And uh, I know we've been talking about doing this for a minute and I just appreciate you sticking, sticking to it. Yeah, and I, and I also, I wanna say that what you said at the beginning about feeling sometimes mixed about this project and like feeling mm -hmm. annoyed at it currently, um, the observation that, I, that came up for me in the moment, which I didn't voice is that um, it just sounds like you're in a real relationship with it. Exactly, right. <laughs> that's, what, that's what doing a project is like. Um, okay. And, so yes, thank you for, for saying that. I agree. Um, and that's something that I've been trying to really do is with this podcast, with all things that I 
start out really passionately about is like sitting through the um, uncomfortable moments because often on the other side of those moments is when the real shit starts to to get done. So, and to- That's the truth. Yeah. 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 Anyways, well, I love you and I miss you and thanks for for chatting with me um, and in my bathroom. (laughs) Mm -hmm, For sure. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for tuning into the fourth episode of The Grand Exit. I feel very appreciative because, as I mentioned in the intro, this particular uh, episode or the time spent with this episode was particularly challenging. Um, In the last month, I spent a lot of time traveling and it was the first time I've done that really in over a year and a half and I felt like I was kind of like hurtling back into in quotes real life and I don't know that my mind or my body was necessarily prepared for all that Um, so I felt really sort of unmoored in the whole experience and um, just my mind and my body felt disconnected or still feel disconnected and it felt really hard to feels still really hard to ground myself and be present Um, It started really with a delayed flight to California, on which I found out that my father's sister, my Aunt Carol, had passed away. Uh, On that flight, I felt just so deeply trapped and also just really unable to sort out any sort of deep emotional reaction. So I felt like I had to compartmentalize my feelings until at least I was off the plane. And somehow I was actually able to compartmentalize them for about five days, really until I landed um, on a 7.30 a.m. red-eye in New Jersey for the funeral. And then when I finally saw my dad. Um, Grief, so interesting. It has so many ways of showing up. Sometimes there is a lot of anger and bombast and you have to like scream and yell and throw dinner plates out a window or smash a bicycle with a golf club like Basil did. But the grief I saw and felt with this particular death was actually really quiet and practical, but it was also subtly debilitating. I saw my father embody grief in a way that appeared kind of as if a a great gust of wind had come by and swept away all the wheat in his field and just left little empty husks blowing around. He was still present, but I could tell he was in like a shadowed version of himself. It was in observing him where I was really, that was really getting to me. And I know my dad is probably listening to this and I don't wish to embarrass him, but seeing him gently grieve made this podcast feel hard and enormous um, and daunting. And I just want to say that there is no iota of me that feels cute about any of this today. But I do maintain that there can be joy and space for levity in all of this. I have urged him to write down his wishes, and as hard as that is, he has brought up this desire to do so several times, and I will certainly let you know if it happens. 
<sighs> so until then, with emotion, <laughs> thank you again. And if you are enjoying the grand exit and want to be a guest or just talk about funerals or death and dying or grief, email me at info at the Let's talk sooner rather than later. <laughs>